I will always protect Mr. Trump. So said Michael Cohen, the president's longtime personal lawyer and his pit bull defender, in an extraordinary statement this week, explaining how he facilitated a $130,000 payment to a porn star, Stormy Daniels, in the closing days of the 2016 election, so she wouldn't talk about a sexual affair she allegedly had with his client a decade earlier. But in publicly confirming the payment, has Cohen just exposed the president to potential legal jeopardy? Was this a royal boneheaded legal screw-up by the president's longtime lawyer? We'll explore that question, as well as other big mistakes by even more prominent lawyers, on this week's episode of Skullduggery. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just Russia say no is a it? ruse. This is Dan Clydman. I'm editor-in-chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Michael Isagov, chief investigative correspondent for Yahoo News. So, Mike, what a whopper. I mean, the president's lawyer going out there, saying these things publicly, clearly hadn't thought through the implications. It's not what you expect from presidential lawyers. Uh, not at all. Uh, a number of things are worth noting here. Number one, there was no reason on earth that Michael Cohen had to go public with the fact that he uh, uh, facilitated this payment to Stormy Daniels. There had been an FEC complaint filed by Common Cause uh, asking them to look into this matter, but it was any response by the FEC would have been confidential. Nothing about what Michael Cohen might or might not have said to the FEC ever would have been publicly known. The FEC would have been barred from talking about it And yet Michael Cohen, for reasons that are unfathomable, um, told the world and confirmed something he had not confirmed before. And it's like it's a double whammy, right? Because now Stormy Daniels feels that she's freed from the confidentiality confidentiality agreement and she can go out there and talk to whoever she wants about this. And we are learning late breaking developments that uh, uh, that she may even have proof of the uh, sexual affair that she allegedly had with Donald Trump in the form of a Monica Lewinsky dress, not a blue dress, but according to a report by The Blast, citing sources close to her, a gold mini dress she wore during the alleged tryst in a Lake Tahoe hotel with the man who would later become president. Now, Mike, you must be having bad deja vu, having broken <laughs> the story of the blue dress in the 90s. It's actually good deja vu, man. <laughs> I got to um, say... Uh, to me, what this yeah. says is, you know, Michael Cohen is a classic character out of Trump world. You know, he's brash. He's theatrical. Uh, he loves to talk to the press and he's undisciplined. And, you know, he just goes out there and says things without thinking through the consequences. And they, they may be big. We're going to talk about that. Right. And regardless of whether or not Stormy Daniels did have this sexual tryst with Donald Trump back in 2005, 2006, right after he had married Melania and Barron was born, regardless of the truth of that, the issue that um, people are going to focus on, the legal issue, is whether or not the payment to her that Michael Cohen has just now confirmed was a violation of federal election law because if it was for the purpose of keeping her silent, if it was in a a form of hush money, then it may have been a campaign contribution for the benefit of Donald Trump and needed to be reported as such. And the Justice Department uh, can actually prosecute such matters. And before this, he just didn't say anything, right? He didn't comment. Now, 
He's talked about facilitating the transfer of this money. And so the question is, well, why? Why did you transfer $130,000 to Stormy Daniels, right? Exactly. And Stormy Daniels may may opine on that and what she knows about the circumstances of that. But we actually have, to explore this issue, one of the world's experts on campaign finance law, with us today on Skullduggery, uh, Lawrence Noble. He was the general counsel for many years of the FEC, the very body that is in charge of enforcing our campaign laws. So, Larry Noble, based on what we know so far, and with this new statement from Michael Cohen that he facilitated this $130,000 payment to Stormy Daniels, was this a uh, campaign contribution that should have been reported to the FEC? It may very well have been. Um, I think um, the complaint to the FEC raises a very fair question and, and it should at the very least be investigated. If Michael Cohn um, facilitated that payment, we can get into what that means, facilitated, um, then the question is, was it for the purpose of influencing Donald Trump's election? And if he was trying to protect Donald Trump, and the campaign knew about it, or he was acting on the uh, behalf of the campaign, then it could very well be a, a political contribution and could be an excessive contribution, a prohibited contribution, and the campaign should have reported it. So what's the test? How does one determine whether this was a uh, for the purpose of influencing a political campaign? It was made in the closing days of the campaign in, uh, in late October, Um, after, by the way, the Access Hollywood tape had put Donald Trump's conduct with women into play. How does one determine whether that was the purpose of this payment or whether it was to protect the presidential candidate from his wife, Melania, from public embarrassment in general, from his children knowing uh, that he had strayed in his marriage? How do you unpack those questions? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I mean, it's a factual question and you bring a little common sense to it. So if there was a history of Michael Cohn paying or facilitating the payment to women so they don't talk about any sexual allegations or anybody, frankly, so they don't talk about any allegations against Trump, if he was uh, if he had facilitated other payments to protect Trump even before he became a candidate, then maybe, you know, you could he has the argument that, look, that's just part of my job, though. It seems odd for that to be a job of, of his lawyer. But that's just part of my job. I've done this before. If there's no history of this, then you look at the fact that it was done a month before the election that. Actually, weeks before the election. I'm sorry, weeks before the election. That's right. The allegations had been around for years about the alleged affair. And so why now all of a sudden does he make the payment or facilitate the payment? And, you know, I think that is that is at least a strong indication that there was that there was a, a campaign reason behind it. Now, what you would look at if the FEC ever investigated is you would want to see if there are any documents surrounding it, any emails. You would want to talk to witnesses to say to find out what conversations were, were had. You'd want to find out when he talked to Stormy Daniels, what did he what did he represent? You know, was there a discussion about the election? So you really want to do a factual investigation into this. Larry, it's Dan. I, I Two quick questions. One is, of course, the president and Michael Cohen uh, vehemently deny uh, that there was a tryst or a sexual affair of, of any kind. But that does that really does that matter? I mean, if they were worried about her going out and talking about that and they're trying to uh, keep her by her silence, that would be to try to influence the campaign. So that's the, so the underlying facts of the case don't really matter. Um, they don't matter that much, but there is a level which which they are at least they, they could color the issue, which is you have to ask yourself if he wasn't running for president, would they care that much? If this really didn't happen, because allegations have been made uh, about him before, if if this really didn't happen, would they have really rushed to pay her to get to, get her to sign a non disclosure agreement if there was no campaign going on? Um, Or would they have just let it ride and let it come out as another allegation? So his statement, um, Michael Cohen made a statement that even if it's not true, something effective, even if it's not true, it it could be very hurtful to him. You know, that sounds like it's more in the context of a campaign than just his general life, because other allegations have been made about him that, as far as we know, they haven't done this type of thing. And the other question I have is you talked about the kind of investigation the FEC uh, would have to do, a, a intensive factual investigation what are the investigative powers of the FEC? I mean, subpoena power, how robust an investigation would the F- FEC do? And if Donald Trump is a you know key witness in, in, in this, would, would there be any way of actually getting 
you know, through interrogatories or however, of getting any answers from Donald Trump himself? Well, we're going to speak hypothetically because the odds of the FEC actually doing anything are very slim. But the FEC has subpoena power. It can issue a subpoena to Michael Cohen, to other people in the campaign. It could subpoena the president. They'd be unlikely to do that. But they could also send out questions not under subpoena. If they do do a subpoena and the parties refuse to comply, they can take them to court to enforce the subpoena. And in the past, the FEC has done that. But what, what, what you would expect to happen is that they would ask a series of questions. Then they could possibly take a deposition if they thought that it was necessary. They could ask, they could do a subpoena for documents and, and ask for related documents. And then if they don't want to turn over the documents, the FEC could sue them. But again, that's all hypothetical. If you were still general counsel of the FEC, as you were for many years, would you recommend a full-scale investigation of this matter? I would recommend reason to believe a violation occurred, which triggers an investigation, and then probably first start off with um, sending them a series of questions, like uh, interrogatories, that they can answer in writing but answer under oath. And then from there, see where you want to go. So what strikes me about this is, and correct me if I'm wrong, Michael Cohen really didn't have to say anything. Common Cause files a complaint with the FEC the FEC then asks him for a response. He can choose to respond or not to respond. But even if he does respond, that response would not have been public, correct? It would not be public while the investigation is going on. When the FEC closes the investigation, then the file would become public. But so why did Michael Cohn go public with this and issue this public statement, which was the first public confirmation that the payment was made. And and does that put more pressure on the FEC to launch an investigation? You know, that's that's an interesting question. Why he went public, I don't know. I mean, if I was his lawyer, I would have said to him, don't do this. And normally what you would do in a situation like this, especially given the way the FEC is today, which is it's supposed to have six members. It only has four. And every action it takes, it has to be take by four members, have to vote for that action. So it needs a unanimous decision. And there are two Republicans and two Democrats. So the odds of the FEC doing anything are slim. But the other thing that occurred to me recently was that on the other last day or two where uh, Stormy Daniels has said that she views the NDA as being um, uh, non-disclosure agreement. Yeah, the non-disclosure agreement being violated by Michael Cohen talking about this, you know, that maybe she's planning to go public and they wanted to get out ahead of it. But, you know, it's a statement written by a lawyer um, that is very clever in some ways, but a little bit too clever that it, and it's easy to see through in the sense of what it doesn't say. So, you know, they may be willing to you know, tout it as, oh, this is the definitive answer, but it's not at all. So I would not have advised doing this, but, you know, is, I, I'm not aware of everything going is on. There in a, is there a preliminary inquiry kind of process where – for the FEC members to make a decision and to you know bring this to a vote, whether to investigate or not, they have to actually do some uh, investigative work, and that might include uh, you know an interview with Stormy Daniels, let's say. Yeah, no, they they actually cannot do that. The way the law works, and they and they've read it very strictly in recent years, is that they get a complaint, they send the complaint to what's called the respondent, the the, the person being charged with with a violation. They get to respond. And the FEC only looks at the complaint and the response and decides whether there's reason to believe a violation has occurred, which I think is a very low standard. Some commissioners think it's a relatively high standard that you almost have to prove the violation occurred. I think if it raises questions, factual questions, then you open an investigation. It's only after they vote by four votes that there's reason to believe a violation occurred can they start questioning people. A, a couple of things. If you look at the FEC complaint, it wasn't filed against Michael Cohen. So there was nothing that would have required him to um, uh, respond at all. Uh, I did talk talk to uh, this morning to uh, 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 Paul Ryan, who's the general counsel for the uh, for Common Cause that filed the complaint. And uh, and he said, first of all, that they are now contemplating uh, an amended complaint that would include Michael Cohen. But he also said that Cohen's statement may have been a boneheaded, self-inflicted injury which I thought was a uh, pretty uh, amazing uh, commentary. But let me, let me just ask you, you said it's not likely that the FEC uh, will act on this. But, but if, in fact, Stormy Daniels comes forward and says, because she now feels free to talk, that the purpose of this payment was, in fact, to keep her silent, that it was, in fact, hush money, doesn't that ramp up the pressure and the case for the FEC for doing something 
I think it does. If she says that it was hush money for the election and they said to her, we need you to be quiet about this because we have an election coming up, then it definitely ramps it up. But, you know, their their position right now seems to be it wasn't about the election. It was to stop embarrassment, generally to stop you know, his wife from being embarrassed. But yes, I think if she says you know, that it was to keep me quiet and she in any way mentions the election, that they talked about the election at all, then I think I think the FEC you know, is under a lot of pressure at that point to do an investigation. How about and the, the, point by, how about the about Justice it? Department as well? Well, yeah, the Justice Department has a slightly different standard because they need to um, find that it's a knowing and willful violation. So the FEC could go forward with an investigation and find a violation or at least pursue a violation, even if it's not knowing and willful, meaning that you knew what the law was and you still violated it. So the FEC can say, look, you may not have known specifically the law prohibited this, but you knew what you were doing. And that's enough for a civil violation. The, the Department of Justice has to prove that it was knowing and willful, that you knew what the law was and you still went ahead and did it. So if I understand you correctly, what Stormy Daniels has to say, a lot's going to be riding on that. This could have major legal consequences for the president. Absolutely. I mean, if she comes out and says that they came to me and they said that, look, the election is in a couple of weeks. We need you to be quiet before the election. We don't want this coming out. And they, as I say, tied it to the election. Then I think uh, the Trump campaign has a real problem there. And I think the FEC has a real problem. I see the the political consequences of an outcome like that. But what are the you know, what are the legal consequences? What you know, if, if it played out that way, and this is obviously hypothetical, um, at the end of the day, you know, what's the punishment? It's a fine. What actually happens? Right. It, there's a civil penalty that can be assessed and they can also be ordered to amend their reports and they could also be ordered to repay the contribution. But it depends on the specific facts. So there are scenarios you can imagine where hard to imagine, but the Trump campaign didn't actually know about this. And Cohn wasn't acting on behalf of the campaign, which is what he would say. That's one scenario. But, you know, if if he's acting on behalf of the campaign or the campaign knew about this, then you have to look at where did the money come from? If it came from Cohn, which he doesn't say it did come from him, ultimately, then you have an excessive contribution. And what you look at is the amount. And it's a large excessive contribution. It's, you know, it's about one hundred twenty something, one hundred twenty seven, four hundred dollars or six hundred dollar excessive contribution. And they did not report it. If it came from a corporation, it's a prohibited contribution. And if and there's no evidence of this, but if it came from a foreign national, it really it really ramps it up um, in terms of the seriousness of it. So you could be looking at a civil penalty and also you, that's where the Department of Justice might get more interested in it. What if it came from Donald Trump himself? There, what you have is he has no contribution limit. So the amount would not be excessive. There, it just becomes a reporting violation. They should have well, reported him making a contribution to his campaign. The well, that's going. interesting. I mean, that is, a you know, because, right, as you he he can self-fund his campaign, right? He doesn't right. have a limit. Right. And, and, and actually, doesn't that seem in some ways like a likely scenario that Michael Cohen just gets a $130,000 bonus at the end of the year and there aren't um, significant consequences. Although if you read Cohen's statement carefully, he only says he facilitated the payment out of personal funds. That's not quite the same thing as saying he made the payment out of personal funds. He could be referring to the $250 or whatever it was to set up the LLC in in Delaware through which the money flowed and that the actual cash, the $130,000, could have been coming from someplace else. Correct, Larry? That's correct. Now, it is possible it came from Trump himself because he says it doesn't didn't come from the campaign or the Trump organization. It's possible Trump himself, you know, wrote the check or or, or you know gave him the cash. However, they did it. But you know, and and you know, if I was investigating this, that would be one of my you know, primary assumptions is that Trump himself paid for this. But then again, knowing Trump or you know what you hear about Trump, it is possible they went to a third party to pay it. Uh, one, so they could say that Trump didn't pay it. And two, because he frankly doesn't like paying out money. But, um, but you know, but he, but they didn't say Trump didn't pay it. Cohn does not say that this is not did not come from Donald Trump, and so that may be a key to this. It may very well have come from Donald Trump. You know, but it could also, as I say, come from a third party. Well, it seems to me that we're in a really extraordinary statement if the question of whether or not the president is in some potential legal jeopardy now hinges on what a uh, porn star named Stormy Daniels is about to say publicly. That's absolutely right. I mean, as I 
uh, said yesterday on, on Twitter is that, you know, I've been practicing campaign finance law for 40 years. I never expected to be talking about a presidential can- a president, um, his lawyer, and a porn star. It's Yeah, campaign finance law usually isn't considered that sexy. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I don't remember of another case where we've had a porn star right. as a witness. But, you know, in all seriousness, one of the things that, that they will raise with, you know, is her credibility, um, you know, whether she's doing this for money. You know, and so that, that will all become a, a, an argument they'll, they'll make. But I think that she, you know, she probably has a fair amount of credibility in this. You know, and so it really does hinge on what she says. I mean, again, if she can say, I was paid to be quiet before the election, I think they have a violation there. You know, and, and if she said the reason I was being paid was because the election was coming up, I think we have a violation. I think they have to be very nervous about that. Well, fascinating. And sort of bottom line uh, to me, though, is that it was Michael Cohen himself who opened the door to this by making his public statement. He has opened the door for Stormy Daniels to say, uh, I can now speak publicly about what happened. And by making his uh, this public statement, he may well have opened the door for the FEC to take this matter more seriously. Would you agree this was a colossal legal screw up by the president's longtime lawyer? It certainly looks like that. There's a part of me, though, in all these situations that wonders whether or not they have some grand scheme here. They, they have some you know, idea of what they're doing, some grand strategy, and we don't understand it yet. But I have to say my experience over the years has been people don't have that. They just screw up. And I think this may have been a colossal screw up on his part. Larry Noble, thanks a lot for your insights. We'll be back to you on this unfolding matter. Great. All right. Thank you. Thanks, thanks Larry. Bye-bye. So what'd you think? I thought it was interesting. Uh, fascinating. I, little did I ever suspect we'd all be hanging on the edge of our chairs waiting for Stormy Daniels to yeah. uh, come forward and uh, yeah. talk. I, I spent like a career in investigative journalism trying to avoid FEC law stories. Uh, maybe I was wrong. Uh, I, I think you're going to be proven wrong because this could be one of the most fascinating FEC ca- cases in history. Um, if the FEC chooses to act, and that's an interesting question. I mean, I come back to this like screw up idea by Cohen because the fact is that uh, he could have said nothing. He could have just told the FEC to bug off. He didn't have to uh, respond at all. He certainly didn't have to publicly because the likelihood that the FEC would ever do anything given that it needs four votes uh, to do so. And they only have four commissioners, two are Republicans. One, by the way, is Matt Peterson, the guy who Trump had nominated for the federal judgeship and then went down in flames when he couldn't answer basic questions about federal law uh, in his confirmation hearings. So it wasn't likely that the FEC was going to act before. But as Larry Noble said, if Stormy Daniels can link the payment to the campaign, it may have no choice. Well, look, but at the end of the day, then it would hinge on the credibility of a porn star who has been selling her story to the media. And it's going to depend on on the specifics of what she says and if she can make a compelling case that, you know, this was to buy my silence and they wanted it for, for the campaign. The other thing quickly I'll say that I thought was important if it turns out that Donald Trump paid the $130,000, well, he's allowed – he wouldn't have violated limits on how much money he, he can give because he can give as much as he wants. He can self-fund his campaign. Politically, on the other hand, it would be pretty bad. And what if it was the Russians who made the payment? <laughs> <laughs> Too good to check as we say. Let's just run with it. <laughs> Too good to check. Although, although I, I, I do want to say that um, you know this could have implications for the Russia investigation on two on two fronts. First of all, Michael Cohen who first put out the statement, you know, calling the whole matter complete garbage. He denied any such occurrence as has Miss Dan- uh, involving Miss Daniels, uh, he said in his initial payment, in his, in, in his initial statement, and now seems to be uh, contradicting himself. Michael Cohen, remember, pops up in the notorious Steele dossier. He allegedly, according to Christopher Steele, the former British spy who was paid by the Clinton campaign to dig up dirt on on Donald Trump, came back with this report that said Michael Cohen had gone to Prague for a meeting with Russian operatives to talk about their uh, interference in the U.S. election. Michael Cohen denied that he was ever in Prague during that time period. I was with a at a breakfast with Adam. Schiff, the ranking Democrat the other day, he said he wants to subpoena the records 
of uh, Michael Cohen to verify his story. Um, hey, he may have a he may have a, a stronger case to know, do so right Isikoff, now. You know, in a weird way, all your scandals kind of run together. I'm 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 uh, having flashbacks to after 9/11 when the Bush administration was uh, alleging that Mohammed Atta. The, the lead hijacker in, in the 9-11 case was in Prague meeting with an Iraqi agent to prove that there was a connection between Saddam Hussein and the 9-11 attacks. Although in that case, you were you debunked the Prague meeting. Now the question is, right. can you confirm? Can, can I confirm? Can the, you confirm Prague Prague the Michael Cohen Prague meeting? Yeah. Look, I knew you were away, you were looking for a way to sneak that in, <laughs> Atta in Prague, uh, a, uh, a notorious episode from the past. Anyway, we will all be watching here at Skullduggery, uh, and you should be listening for the next development in the un- unfolding Stormy Daniels saga. We're going to take a quick break now, and when we come back. We'll be talking to Lanny Davis about another possibly major legal screw-up, this one involving James Comey, the former director of the FBI. And we now have on the line our guest, a special guest today, Lanny Davis, longtime spinmeister for the Clintons, both Bill and Hillary, author of a new book, The Unmaking of the President 2016, How FBI Director James Comey Cost Hillary Clinton the Presidency. Welcome, Lanny. Thank you, Daniel, and thank you, Michael. So, Lanny, I read your book, and uh, you lay out the case, basically, that James Comey cost Hillary Clinton the 2016 election because of the press statement he made uh, about the Hillary Clinton email investigation and the uh, last-minute letter in late October telling the world he was reopening that investigation. And you basically argue that um, he should have been fired. I think you've said that uh, he should have been fired by Barack Obama. And then in the last chapter of your book, you say that Donald Trump should be impeached for firing James Comey. So it seems to me your book is a little schizophrenic. Please explain the uh, discrepancy there. Well, that one is in, that's easy. He should have been fired, but because he violated Justice Department rules going back to Dwight Eisenhower in Republican and Democratic administrations, nobody disagrees with that. Nobody disagrees that James Comey, when he sent his October 28th letter to Congress, violated every rule in the Justice Department going back 75 years. And it's a firing offense. The most recent person to say that is Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosen. Exactly. So Donald Trump did the right thing by firing James Comey. He did the right thing for the wrong reason. And that's why there's no inconsistency in saying if you fire the top federal investigator of yourself and you're the president and you tell NBC News the reason I fired him is because he was engaging in that Russian investigation, which is about Donald Trump and possible collusion. That's called obstruction of justice. Although he if also Barack said Obama he fires him, it's called forcing Comey to follow the rule. Right. Although he also said he was relying, at least this was the initial White House statement, on Rod Rosenstein's memo, which uh, criticized Comey's uh, handling of the Hillary Clinton email investigation. That was his first explanation, and it was greeted by, if anything, laughter even among his supporters because everyone knew that he wouldn't fire Comey because he did in Hillary Clinton, who he had been leading cheers about jailing, along with uh, Michael Flynn, I would say, at the National Convention, lock her up. So nobody believed that he fired Comey because Comey was unfair to Hillary Clinton. And he quickly realized that even Donald Trump can't lie that badly. And he owned it up two days later with Lester Holt on NBC. Well, Lanny, I want to actually get to the beginning of the book, but I want to follow up on this for a second because I'm wondering if you're saying that uh, Comey should have been fired only because of all the bad things he did to Hillary Clinton, but everything he's done and everything he did in his investigation of Donald Trump was completely above board. So, for example, you know, he brought a, a synopsis of that the dossier with all those, you know, unverified allegations into his meeting with Trump at Trump Tower during the transition. Was that appropriate? I mean, didn't that have a, a, a whiff of, of, of J. Edgar Hoover and blackmail? Did you think that was an appropriate move on his part? 
Well, first of all, let me start with the first part of your uh, question, which is I do agree that he's done many other inappropriate things uh, for exactly the same reason, which we'll get into if you want me to read the man's uh, motivations. But he, he should have been fired uh, or at least disciplined many times, not just because he wrote the letter on October 28th, which literally changed the outcome of the election. And I proved that statistically. It's not an argument. It's not a belief. It's a fact that the poll numbers immediately plummeted because of the Comey letter. But to answer your question on the dossier, it's almost not a serious question, but I will take it as serious because you asked it. FBI <laughs> Thank you. Agents, <laughs> Dan, Danny <FBI> is honored. <laughs> yeah, Danny should be. FBI agents, any investigator, any prosecutor will tell you, we take evidence sometimes from the most scurrilous scumbag criminals. If we determine them to be true, even though the rest of their life is not credible, we will take a turncoat uh, flipped witness and make them into a major witness in a trial. So whatever else you say about Mr. Steele, and he is regarded very highly in the British and European intelligence communities, as well as the United States intelligence communities, as credible. Whatever else you might say or not say about him, it is not inappropriate. And indeed, Comey was urged by the other people in the meeting to take Trump aside as the president-elect and to give him a, quote, heads up on some of the personal, unproven, and what is normally called salacious material that Steele gathered. And that, to me, was completely appropriate. Let's go back and unpack your case against James Comey. And by the way, Comey, you know, has a book of his own coming out in, uh, I think they've moved up the publication date to early April. So he will presumably be presenting a uh, fulsome defense of his uh, of his actions here. But as I understand it from you, it, it, this all stems from his July 5th statement to the press in which he said that the uh, FBI was not going to recommend a criminal prosecution of Hillary Clinton, that no reasonable prosecutor based on the facts would do so, but then added that there was her handling of classified information was extremely careless, that she sent emails on her personal BlackBerry while overseas in uh, foreign in countries that are hostile to the United States, that there was a possibility that those emails had been hacked and intercepted by foreign powers, and um, that her conduct was not appropriate here. You're saying he should have said nothing, if I understand your position correctly, just said, we're not going to recommend prosecution of Hillary Clinton, period. Well, that was the first firing offense. I focused my book on the October 28th letter, which went against 75 years of Justice Department policy that you don't say anything, either a prosecutor, an attorney general, or the head of the FBI, 60 days before a presidential election. That's just a flat out rule that he violated. But what you're referring to, I have never met, and I would love you guys as great reporters that at least you used to be before you got in the podcast business, (laughs) find me a single, and I'll use the word respectable prosecutor so you can catch me on what do I mean, who would disagree that anyone before a public indictment, either a prosecutor or an investigator, much less the head of the Federal Investigative Service named the FBI, that anyone is ever, under any circumstances, allowed to offer their opinion of evidence in the middle of an investigation or at the end of an investigation, unless you indict. Right. There's a quote in my book that every prosecutor you interview will say that's exactly right. And I mean Republican prosecutors, prosecutors who were part of the Bill Clinton Whitewater group who I've talked to, there isn't a single prosecutor I've ever met and most FBI agents I've talked to for the book who say that you're ever allowed to offer your opinion of the evidence other than through an indictment. And in fact, the quote in the book is from one senior Justice Department official from the Bush administration. You know what we don't do, Lanny? We don't shame and not charge. It's not allowed. Lanny, what, what 
Why do you think he did it? Is this another case where maybe you agree with Trump that he's a grandstander and it was ego and vanity? Or do you really yes. think he or do you think he's um, he was politically motivated and he was doing the bidding of the anti Hillary cabals inside the FBI? Maybe not. I don't know about political motivation. He was very close to Rudy Giuliani. Rudy Giuliani hired him. He worked on the Mark Rich investigation when he became U.S. attorney. He investigated Bill Clinton. He volunteered to work for Al D'Amato on Whitewater. So there are tinges of Republican bias there. But he also stood up to George W. Bush and grandstand at that moment in front of Senator Chuck Schumer, made sure that the world knew that he was Mr. Integrity, Mr. Independent. He could even stand up to a Republican president on the surveillance program. So I've tried to figure this guy out. I called him to offer to hear his side of the story. I'd already heard it in all the newspapers because he's very good at saying his friends and associates say the reason he sent the letter was he promised the Congress and he had to live up to his word. So that's what we'll read in his book. And my analysis of his motivation is I can't figure out the motivation as political bias. I can only figure out that what I see is what I'm actually looking at. And that is a narcissist, a narcissist so extreme that the irony is there's only one bigger narcissist in public life that I've witnessed, and that's Donald Trump. So I want to go back to actually earlier in the book, which I think in your views might in some ways be the original sin here. Some people would say it was Hillary using a private server, but you don't agree with that. And that involves reporting. It involves the New York Times reporting on, I guess it was July 24th, that two inspectors general had made a criminal referral to the Justice Department. And they actually had multiple Justice Department officials confirming that. And that turned out not to be true. There was not a criminal referral. You make a big deal of that. And yet we later learn, and there's a July 10th memo, that confirms that the FBI had indeed launched a criminal investigation into Hillary Clinton. So doesn't that kind of fundamentally undercut your argument? There was a criminal investigation into Hillary Clinton. Yeah, I agree that the New York Times got something wrong because of sloppy reporting. But sooner or later, the fact that there was a criminal investigation of Hillary Clinton on emails would have come out. I wrote that chapter with the delicious irony of remembering, and I think most reporters I've talked to have seen the irony, of remembering the scene in All the President's Men when Woodward and Bernstein hear Ben Bradley yell, Woodstein! (laughs) And they run across the room at the Washington Post to learn that they got the story wrong, that the Nixon campaign treasurer was denying that he told the grand jury that Haldeman and all the President's men controlled the slush fund. And he denied it right after the Post broke the story. And they were about to be fired. The post was about to be crashed. And they ran over to the FBI and they finally figured it out. And they talked to Bradley. And Bradley said, so well, how did you guys, can I use the F word on your podcast? Go for it. It was Ben Bradley. So, so how'd you guys fuck up? And Woodward, I think, uh, Robert Redford in the movie says, well, we actually had the story right. Sloan did tell us that the slush fund was controlled in the White House by Haldeman and all the president's men. What we got wrong is that Sloan told the grand jury that we just messed up on that phrase. And of course, Bradley said, well, why'd you mess up on that phrase? Why didn't why didn't he tell the grand jury? And because Sloan said he never asked the the grand jury, never asked me the question. So the point of the story is and the two times reporters at Michael S. Schmidt, Matt Apuzo are two of the best reporters in certainly today's journalism. I have only respect for both of them. And they sat for a long time with me to explain the mistake they made was to take a leak that characterized a memo from the inspector general and mischaracterized it. Rather than waiting to write, to actually read the memo, they wouldn't have gotten it wrong that it was the memo that announced a criminal investigation. What the Justice Department was telling them late at night was, yeah, there is a criminal investigation, but They just messed up knowing that it wasn't the two inspectors general. Although I got to say, they had public confirmation from the public affairs chief of the Justice Department that it was a criminal referral. And I got to say, I got the same confirmation the next morning. And that would have been good enough for me if the if the official spokesperson for the Justice Department tells you it's true. You generally take that as uh, as accepted fact. 
I don't find fault with uh, the only thing I find fault is that they went with the story based upon a characterization of something rather than insisting if they had called the inspector general, who I've also had the occasion to know what he was thinking. And the very next morning I describe in my book at on the beltway, the uh, state department inspector general calls the intelligence inspector general and says, what the fuck? We didn't make a criminal referral. What the hell is the New York times talking about here? It was just all messed up. Yeah. What you were getting was what I what I also got when I spoke to the same individual who made the confirmation to all you guys. Yeah. Why did you confirm a criminal investigation? Because I thought they were talking about the memo that had been opened up two weeks before. I didn't know they were talking about the inspector general. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but look, the bottom line here is that Hillary Clinton was the first presidential candidate in modern memory, maybe ever, who was under criminal investigation by the FBI while she was running for president, which is pretty extraordinary on its face. Now, I know you'd go to great lengths to defend Hillary Clinton and her private email server here, but it seemed to me in reading your book, you kind of give the game away right off the bat in your first chapter when you say any discussion of why Hillary Clinton decided to use a private server for emails must begin with the fact that she's long been a target of hatred, criticism, and misinformation. So you're basically confirming that she set up this private email server to hide her emails and keep them away from the free, any Freedom of Information Act requests so her political enemies, as well as legitimate reporters such as ourselves, could never have access to them. So aren't you just admitting basically that she was trying to hide stuff from the world in setting up her private email server. And that's what set this whole thing off to begin with. Good question. Uh, hard to answer in short form, but let me try to be less than I usually am, which is talk too long. Number one, she made a mistake and she has said so. She never should have set the private server up because she should have known I'm Hillary Clinton and sooner or later this is going to come out and it won't look so good. Number two, Colin Powell did exactly the same thing. Don't tell me Hillary Clinton had a private server and Colin Powell didn't. Colin Powell used a AOL private server out of the government system, outside the State Department system, and nobody knew he was doing it. And thirdly, Colin Powell in an email to Hillary Clinton that wasn't published until September 2016 told her the emails were collected by the uh, House Oversight Committee, but they weren't released until a Democrat, Elijah Cummings, released them in the fall of 16. Colin Powell sends an email to Hillary Clinton and says, listen, I set up a, a system outside the State Department and used AOL. It was dial-up in those days uh, because I wanted privacy. And when you put something on the State Department server, you don't have privacy. So yes, the answer to your question is she wanted privacy, mixing personal with official. She certainly didn't want personal emails posted and, and display it on the front page of the New York Post. And that was one reason. The other was convenience. Should right. she have two Blackberries, one for official, one for personal? And she also said she decided the hell with it, one is enough. But she said that was a mistake in retrospect, a political mistake in retrospect. Well, I, you know, and some, you I, say, I think it was. That mistake, she would have won it, the president. Yeah, but it, it, was, it was more than a mistake, Lanny. And I have to sort of refer you to the State well, Department. Pick your word. Well, the State Department Inspector General, an Obama appointee who did an exhaustive report on this, and while acknowledging, you're right, that Colin Powell had did something similar, it wasn't a private server, it was an AOL account, uh, the uh, department, the, but, but let me just read you from the Inspector General report. Between the time Colin Powell, years earlier, was Secretary of State and Hillary Clinton became Secretary of State in 2009, the IG found that the uh, department guidance against using private emails became, quote, considerably more detailed and more sophisticated. Secretary Clinton's cybersecurity practices accordingly must be evaluated in light of these more comprehensive uh, directives. And then they go on to say that sending emails from a personal account to other employees at department accounts is not an appropriate method of preserving any such emails. 
Secretary Clinton should have preserved any federal records she created. At a minimum, she should have surrendered all emails dealing with department business before leaving government. And because she did not do so, she did not comply with the department's policies that were implemented in accordance with the Federal Records Act. The inspector general found she violated the rules of the State Department at the time she was secretary of state. Correct? Okay. First of all, that's cherry picking or the opposite cherry picking. Of cherry Those picking. were the conclusions of the State so, Department I'm Inspector General the Inspector report. General, the Inspector General's words omit one word, and all the rest of it is crap and subjective nonsense. So the, the cabal Inspector against General, Hillary Clinton is not just a political enemies no, 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 and not just the New York Times and not just I, the I FBI, but it's the Inspector General of the State Department I know as well. Steve at, I know Steve Linick at the State Department, and I know exactly what he said and what he wrote, and you just proved my point. Would you go back and read one word in that statement that uses the word unlawful? Well, the federal, uh, the freedom Michael, of... Michael, you can't. Michael, yeah. you can't. No, no, no. He, he never, doesn't. And I, and, and that's not his... Say, I don't reveal my sources, but if yeah. you interviewed Steve Linick, he would say, I agree 100%. All right, I want to ask... Guidelines, policies, rules, maybe. He also <laughs> then had a whole paragraph you didn't quote that this has been... Uh, rampant throughout the State Department for a long time. Indeed, she got 300 emails that she forwarded on from senior diplomats through unsecure channels that people claim had uh, classified information but never labeled. In fact, Comey didn't charge her because out of 33,000 emails, not one was labeled classified. Not one, despite the misreporting by all of you that that singular fact that cannot be disputed, not one email that she received from 300 diplomats and forwarded on was labeled classified. Okay. So Steve Linick, Steve Linick would not disagree with me, just take my word for it, that not only did she do nothing illegal, he thought she violated rules, policies, lots of guidelines, but so did everybody else. That's the part <laughs> of that paragraph you didn't All right. read. So Lanny, you've been uh, generous with with your time, and we're going to let you go soon. But I want to ask. Oh, don't! I'm enjoying. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I want to ask uh, one. I want to ask a question about character, because uh, the case that you make and that her defendant Hillary Clinton's defenders have been making for a long time is compelling on a human level. She has been attacked and investigated and pried into her private life and so on and so forth. But you know, presidential campaigns are very scrutinizing, and that's part of the big challenge that you have to overcome. How do you deal with that kind of scrutiny? And it exposes what kind of a politician you are. And, you know, the reality is even in how she dealt with the email uh, controversy, you know, she was steely and kind of cold and defensive. And I kind of wonder, like, how would Bill Clinton have handled it? He, you know, I think he would have been much more uh, adept politically. He would have been the charming rogue. He would have gotten through it. And so at the end of the day, maybe she lost the election because of Comey's um, October 28th election, but maybe she also lost it because she didn't have the political skills to deal with it. What do you think? Well, I I hate to end up this great interview by conceding that either one of you are right about anything. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but which would be a first. You have as, yeah. I have to concede. I hope this tape doesn't get listened to. Uh, <laughs> that a number a number of points that you've made are correct, uh, and certainly what uh, Daniel you've just mentioned, I have said publicly, and Hillary Clinton herself has admitted. The email controversy was worse than it should have been because they didn't follow the elemental rules of crisis management, which in my subtitle of the book, when I uh, terrorized uh, Ewan Isikoff when I was at the White House. Uh, I thought it was the other way around, yeah. Manny. I thought we terrorized you. Talk about spin, yeah. man. <laughs> Sometimes the other way around. But my philosophy, thanks to Professor Mike Mur- McMurray, and you both know uh, McCurry, and you both know what my philosophy is. Bad story, emails. Bad story. Even if the Times got it wrong, the headline was bad, the criminal investigation was bad, all bad. Tell it early, tell it all, tell it yourself. That was the rule of getting out in front of a bad story. And the Hillary Clinton campaign organization and the candidate herself, and that's why I wrote my first chapter. 
not to endorse the management of the email story, but to explain why they got it wrong. And no, Bill Clinton got Whitewater just as wrong as Hillary Clinton's crisis managers got the emails wrong. Because when you're attacked, and you're attacked about a nothing burger like Whitewater, which as I remember, you guys spent a lot of time writing about it, it ended up to be zero. That no member of the media can just say, well, why shouldn't Hillary Clinton be transparent with us? We're always fair to her. <laughs> so there is certainly a, a human explanation as to why she wasn't more upfront and didn't follow the rules of crisis management. My whole first chapter was really tough to write because I know that they mismanaged the email story. And I say they, it wasn't just the candidate, it was everybody in the campaign, including John Podesta, knows to this date that it was mishandled, that they didn't recognize the seriousness of it. They didn't think there was anything that unusual. That's all in my first chapter. So I concede your point, Daniel. Well, congratulations on the book. It's a good read. Thank you. And uh, It's a good preview for Comey's book. In <laughs> fact, uh, you'll probably get a little more uh, uh, mileage out of this after Comey's book comes out. Well, I did ask to interview him on my final just defensive comment here. I, I, I thought that he was not a politically biased man. I thought he was a man so full of himself, so narcissistic that he didn't think he had to follow the rules. That's my character analysis of him. I'm looking forward to his book being non-narcissistic. As Rod Rosenstein said, if he had shown just a little bit of contrition or regret about sending that letter that he wouldn't say cost Hillary Clinton the election in his letter, he said, he simply violated all the rules by sending the letter. If Comey just starts the book out by saying, you know, in retrospect, I really screwed up. And I, I had to follow the rules because I don't work for myself. I work for the attorney general and the president. Maybe I'll take back my narcissism uh, uh, description of James Comey, but I don't think so. So you're looking for Comey to follow your rules of crisis management. <laughs> I, I wish if he would call me, I would say your, 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 your book should be repeating the November 6th letter you wrote when it was too late. Dear Mr. Members of Congress, oops, got it wrong. Sorry, nothing there. Bye. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thanks All a lot right. for joining Skullduggery. Thank you. Thank you. Great talking to you. Thanks for the you. invitation, guys. Take care, Lanny. Thanks to Larry Noble and Lanny Davis for joining us on Skullduggery this week. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And keep your eyes out for a special short episode coming up on Tuesday. It's a buried treasure. We'll talk to you next week. Next week.